Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 209 for the 29th of July, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with John Shire this week. Welcome to Vancouver, John. Thanks, Chet. Good to have you. I uh, thought we'd change things up a little bit, give Paul a break. And uh, I guess it's not necessarily summer in his part of the world, but uh, everybody needs a break once in a while. So I'm coming back from vacation next week at uh, DEF CON and Black Hat and thought I'd kind of get back into the swing of things. If you're going to be attending either of those conferences and would like to come see us, please stop by. We'll be uh, in the exhibitor area at Black Hat, and I'll be wandering around the floors of DEF CON. But uh, if you drop me an email or a note or send me a tweet, I'd be happy to meet up and say hello. First off this week, Pakistan. I, I, I got a little excited as a Canadian. I thought perhaps this is a good thing for our friends over at, at BlackBerry. Uh, BlackBerry has been banned in Pakistan. Do you, do you think this is a good thing? <laughs> well, as we were talking prior to the podcast, uh, this is maybe one less nail in the coffin of BlackBerry. And, and I agree with you as, as a Canadian. It's nice to see when uh, companies prosper and do well. But yeah, it's, t- it's tough to say on this one. With all the news around governments spying on their citizens or uh, spying on, on dissidents or, or anybody else they don't agree with, the hacking team disclosures and what they were involved with, this is just another one of those interesting stories about a government really trying to get their hands around how do you spy on the people you're interested in. And it just seems that if, if we're taking it at face value that BlackBerry's crypto is just a little too strong for the Pakistani government. Yeah, I, I, I find it um, an interesting trade-off. Like you, you would think that it's a real boon for security-conscious smartphone users that uh, are looking for a new device to perhaps go to BlackBerry um, because their security is so good, apparently governments can't handle it. Or, you know, the number of customers they're losing in Pakistan is probably not devastating to the bottom line at BlackBerry. But it kind of raises questions to me. I mean, the, the allegedly Bez crypto um, can't be man in the middle. And that's why the Pakistan government's instructed mobile providers and internet providers to block Bez traffic on their networks. It kind of raises the question of, well, how secure is my Android or my iPhone then, right? Like they're not banning iPhones, which kind of says something about the security employed in maybe iMessage. Well, that's just it, right? So if, if they're going as far as to make it sort of a government decree that thou shalt not use Blackberries or Bez servers in the country, uh, I agree with you. It's It does leave the door open to interpretation as to, you know, how secure are these other platforms? Well, we'll, we'll talk about Android in a few minutes, which certainly is not racking up the best score sheet in the vulnerability and security category uh, recently. And we'll, we'll cover that uh, in, in just a moment. I guess part of the other issue could be and for the conspiracy minded uh, people out there, which uh, I, I I don't believe what I'm about to say for a second, but you know some people might say, well, does that mean that Apple and Google are in bed with with the governments, right? There's been all this talk about backdoors uh, in, in products, and Apple and Google have vehemently denied that. But again, it's just some more of this fuel for that conspiracy fire that uh, loves to uh, rear its head in, in our circles sometimes. Well, yeah, I think there, there may be two sides to that, right? Uh, most technologies we use today implement TLS as their security mechanism and use the public key infrastructure of getting a certificate from a certificate authority to authenticate that traffic. And because of that, governments often can man in the middle of that traffic if they're able to mint certificates with their own CA. And maybe the reason they've uh, singled out BlackBerry is that BlackBerry certificates are actually generated in the software itself. They're not using the public key infrastructure. So there's nobody to go and issue a warrant to. There's no way to necessarily man in the middle or forge that authentication because it's set up by the administrators themselves. So maybe we've just unraveled this little mystery. Uh, Moving along, 
we have a podcast and some other content up on Naked Security related to what we call When Penguins Attack. I did a, a presentation on Linux malware for the SCALE conference in Los Angeles back in February. And as part of that, we've published a podcast with myself and Paul Ducklin discussing what the real threats of Linux are as far as uh, kind of the role it plays in the malware ecosystem. And uh, in addition to that, we're also letting people know that uh, we have protection on our cloud product now for Linux. And we also have a absolutely free, as in beer, uh, version of Sophos Antivirus for Linux uh, at no cost that anybody can use for any reason they like. So if you've got a Linux box that's not protected, you can certainly go to our website to the free tools area and pick it up and give it a try. Yeah, and to add to that, if uh, you're not sure whether you need AV on Linux or not, I, I do urge that uh, you give the podcast a listen because I think it it does lay out the perils of, of running Linux in, in the connected world today that uh, some people might not immediately realize. And uh, I think that as you've drawn some parallels to sort of this IoT, right, this Internet of Things, increasingly becoming more popular, increasingly becoming more present in corporations as people are bringing in things like smart TVs for their boardrooms or, you know, Nest thermometers for their offices, you know, these things all seem to be running some form of Linux. And so the the whole Linux issue is definitely one that needs to be addressed and recognized. And we need to, as security professionals, understand what the risks are to broadening the footprint of Linux within our organizations. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a different threat than Windows. And clearly, we're not seeing hundreds of thousands of Linux viruses every day and this kind of thing. And and that's what we're trying to do is dispel some of the myths and talk about what the real threats are so that we can uh, appropriately apply protection where it's needed and to understand uh, kind of, you know, how to go about providing that protection, because it's obviously very different to protect a web server or an embedded Linux device than it is, say, to worry about banking Trojans on Windows. So they're, they're different threats. So Give it a whirl. Go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and uh, look for malware on Linux. You know, that's kind of a collected spot with all of our data. Today, the big news in the tech world is the Windows 10 launch. No matter how you feel about Windows or OS 10 or Linux or uh, even uh, Microsoft in general, it's something that I think is going to impact everyone. Uh, you know, Windows 7 is the most commonly used desktop operating system in the business environment. As we've uh, been encouraging people to please give up their, their XP habit, I'm going to start encouraging people to a degree to move beyond Windows 7. And of course, the problem with that has been that Windows 8 was rather unpalatable to a lot of people, but Windows 10 is here, so it's safe to safe to move up, right? Yeah, it's one of those things that you know we've we constantly hear the old uh, every other Microsoft release is crap uh, routine from many people. But the the fact of the matter is, and we've said this said this before on on this podcast and in some of the articles that we write, that every time Microsoft releases an operating system, there are some definite security upgrades that get built into the operating system. So regardless of whether you liked the new UI or not, or or some of the ways you know the places they've moved uh, certain elements and and the way that you know, the processes that you need to go through to to accomplish a task, it's still a good idea to get a modern operating system with modern protections built in. Now, that said, we've had a bit of a chat around some of the things relating to security that Microsoft has put into the operating system. And, you know, the very first thing you're presented with is this whole, you know, creating a Microsoft account. I, you know, I, I rather like the little story you told me before the podcast about your experience with that. Yeah, uh, Microsoft, I mean, they for every five things they get right, they find a way to do five more wrong, it seems. And we're going to cover Windows 10 more comprehensively on Naked Security uh, soon. And in addition to that, talk about 
security improvements from an enterprise perspective and a management perspective. Also, um, unfortunately, some of the things that you're talking about, uh, I know previously we, we covered this Wi-Fi Sense technology and uh, how that can share you know, your passwords for Wi-Fi and things like that in a way that I'm extremely uncomfortable with and I'm not even sure is legal. Uh, although they have enough lawyers at Microsoft that I suspect somebody probably checked on that. So maybe, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'll just stop worrying about that. But when I added a Microsoft account to one of my test machines this week, it prompted me and said that I should not use a password because it's insecure and I should switch it to a PIN. My head nearly exploded, and about a half an hour later when I recovered, I took a screenshot of it because I, I was just shocked. I, I wanted to take it to someone in the Microsoft security team at Black Hat next week and, and grab them and, and shake them by the shoulders and show it to them and say, what were you thinking? And they, they even provided you with sort of a description of why pins are more secure, didn't they? Yes, unfortunately, and it, it's the most ridiculous thing I've seen. It says, because you probably use your password on many different websites to access things on the internet, it's insecure. And by switching it to a pin that you only use on your laptop, it'll be much more secure because nobody else will know your secret pin. This is nearly as bad as when they asked me to draw a shape to log into Windows 8, I think yeah. it was. Uh, I'm not sure what what's next. Maybe uh, Windows 11, are we going to have like Duplos that we get to like build a little house from or? Because nobody re reuses pins at all, right? Well, yeah, precisely. I wouldn't choose the pin for my alarm system or the pin for my credit card. God, no. And of course, those pins are all completely completely different. And the fact of the matter is, you know, th that's just one big logical fallacy. And if, if we just very simply do the arithmetic on a pin versus a even a lowercase alphabetic password, uh, it doesn't take long to realize which one wins. Enough of that. We'll, we'll follow up on Windows 10 uh, a little more comprehensively now that it's released for people that are interested in deploying it. And hopefully most of these bad idea options can be turned off, especially through group policies. Right. So the bottom line is if you can get Windows 10 as an upgrade, you should probably go out and get it due to some of the many security improvements they have put in. And as you said, we will cover uh, Windows 10 in more depth at a later time. Now, it had been a couple weeks since I had to pull out the vulnerability name generator dies that I have in my drawer here. And it, it, it seems to be that uh, we had to dust them off this week for, I guess, for next week's DEF CON pre-publication of We Cannot Possibly Pimp Our Own Research Enough award. But nonetheless, they found a vulnerability named Stage Fright. And it's named after the library on Android devices called Lib Stage Fright that processes MMS messages. Now, most of us probably haven't seen an MMS in quite a long time. Most people, I guess, if they want to send videos and images and uh, multimedia to mobile phones are using WhatsApp or Snapchat or Facebook and things like this. But Sadly, our phones still process MMSs whether we want them to or not. Are those vulnerability naming dice the ones that are right next to your attribution dice? <laughs> no, the attribution is a coin. Okay. Yeah, so the, this is an interesting story. Uh, I guess the, the scary part of this all is if you are using the default MMS catcher in Android, it will process whatever you send it automatically in the background without you really actioning on it. Um, so, you know, that is an issue. But as you say, it, it's it's becoming increasingly, I guess, and, and, you know, without doing any serious research on this, it's becoming increasingly rare to see people not using something like social media. Uh, you know, like you said, the Vines, the Snapchats, those types of apps to send that kind of content. You know, we both use third-party apps as well to, for our communications between each other. So uh, the actual impact that this will have, I guess, 
probably remains to be seen. The media painted it as what, like 950 million devices were vulnerable. Well, the problem is you don't have to use MMSs. They happen, as you said, they happen without any user intervention. So if someone weaponizes these malicious MMS messages, they could just spam them out to Androids around the world and, and send malware to them. So, and there's nothing the Android users can do. And this is really the gigantic flaw in the Google ecosystem is you can't do anything about it other than root your phone and run your own software so you can turn things off, which of course, if you do that, you get locked out of your corporate environment. You can't use Google Play services correctly. You got a million other problems. So I, I, I'm really close to abandoning Android myself because I'm fed up, right? I'm, I'm being promised by Google that a fix for this will be available to me soon because I'm on a Nexus device. And the only reason I even bought a Nexus device and felt like I didn't have a choice of what I even wanted to purchase, I could only justify him in my own head, a Nexus device if I was going to buy an Android at all because of the vulnerability problems. What about those 950 million people, right? Those other devices that aren't Nexus devices. So let's assume a million of those are, are Nexus. <laughs> so the other 949 million, you know, are they going to win the lottery or is Samsung going to ship them an update? I mean, I think there's probably equal odds of either one. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does speak to the sorry state of updating in the Android ecosystem more than anything else. The fact that, uh, you know, yeah, if Google does fix this, I said this on a, a recent podcast and we've said it before, you know, you're anywhere from 30 days to never to getting an update if you're not on a Nexus platform. That just leaves way too many people at risk. It leaves the uh, the ecosystem in, in this sort of fractured state where you have a set of devices that are up to date, some devices that aren't. You can't even guarantee that a, a recent handset is actually going to be on the latest update. We've seen some older hardware on more recent versions of Android than newer hardware. So this is really something that, that Google needs to get fixed and get get fixed soon if they want to really be serious about maintaining the security on their platform. Sorry, nothing to see here, folks. Move along. It's not a problem. I asked Google and they told me it's not a problem. So we don't need that. I, I suspect they're not trying to fix it because it's not a problem. And lastly, we have another story about bad guys going to jail, which I, I always like these. Makes me feel like something we're doing is having an impact in the world. And more than that, I especially like them when they include people that I know of from previous crimes they've committed and other malware schemes they've been involved in. In this case, three Estonians were jailed uh, related to the DNS changer malware, which we talked about quite a bit on the podcast a few years back when it happened. This was malware that was designed to go into your DNS settings and point you at a rogue DNS server that could redirect your DNS answers to send you to uh, things that racked up malicious uh, advertising revenue for the criminals behind it. And uh, that whole thing was shut down a few years ago. Finally, the gang, which was seven people, it was six Estonians and a Russian, were apprehended, and three of them were sentenced this week in the United States. They've been, uh, they were sentenced to a cumulative 11-year sentence for infecting just millions and millions of computers. But the one I'm still waiting with bated breath is the, the gang leader, a man named Vladimir Setsitsin. And uh, Vladimir uh, pled guilty a few weeks ago in district court, but has not been sentenced himself. But since he was the ringleader, I suspect he's going to get a, a little little heavier uh, sentence than the the other gentleman. Yeah, it's uh, as I said in the in last week's podcast, the the crime and punishment segment of uh, the chat chat. And uh, again, it's it's good to see that there 
is something being done. And and this time it's in one of those countries that, as I said in a previous podcast, we may have sort of written off in the past as not being cooperative and not being a part of the sort of the global cybersecurity community. And uh, yeah, good on them for actually pursuing these gentlemen and probably should use gentlemen loosely, uh, these crooks, uh, and actually, you know, putting them where they deserve. Yeah. And for those who keep notes from our Anatomy of an Attack series or some of the podcasts and things, Vladimir Setsitsin may be a familiar name because, uh, as I like to put it, he's the man who made Brian Krebs famous. Brian Krebs uh, broke a story about Est Domains, an Estonian domain registrar that was run by Mr. Setsitsin and was known for helping spam criminals uh, change DNS names very quickly, something called FastFlux. And uh, they were doing another thing called domain tasting, where they could register millions of domain names in a day, use them for a spam run, and then turn them all in 72 hours later and not have to pay for them. Vlad was behind that, and Krebs figured out how to report his previous uh, uh, criminal activities to ICANN so they would suspend S-Domains as a registrar. That concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat 209. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. If you like this podcast and want to hear more of our podcasts, you can get them via RSS, you can get them on iTunes, you can get them in the TuneIn app, anywhere that you find quality podcasts. And until next time, stay secure.